Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, why does it matter to me, a media consumer, an internet user, a person concerned with social justice, why does a 2-2 deadlock at the FCC matter to me? What could be happening if Biden's long-languishing nomination of public interest advocate Gigi Sohn were put through? Net neutrality? An anti-discrimination law around broadband access that isn't written by corporations? Maybe U.S. citizens could stop paying more for slower broadband than just about every other industrialized country. We won't know unless Democrats stand up to the series of increasingly absurd and offensive smears on Sone. And that remains to be seen. Evan Greer tracks technology and its meaning for justice activism as director of Fight for the Future. She'll help us place the fight around Gigi Sohn's FCC nomination in that Keystone public conversation. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. Dr. Lena Wen, a well-known medical commentator for The Washington Post and CNN, wants us to believe that society has overcounted COVID deaths and hospitalizations. She made the claim from both platforms in mid-January. In the Post, as Ari Paul reports for FAIR.org, Wen suggested that the U.S. COVID death toll might be 30% of what's currently reported. That is about 120 deaths a day rather than 400. Though she added, that's still unacceptably high. Wen said revising the toll downward, quote, could help people better gauge the risks of traveling, indoor dining, and activities they have yet to resume, close quote. After some angry responses, Wen doubled down on her insistence that we accept that, quote, data changed over time and that deaths due to the pandemic are not necessarily the same as deaths due to COVID, close quote. How did she reach this conclusion? She spoke with two doctors. One told Wen that if patients with multiple concurrent infections die, quote, COVID might get added to their death certificate along with the other diagnoses, close quote, even though, quote, the coronavirus was not the primary contributor to their death and often played no role at all, close quote. She elaborated, quote, a gunshot victim or someone who had a heart attack, for example, could test positive for the virus, but the infection has no bearing on why they sought medical care, close quote. Except that's not how cause of death is determined. A former medical examiner told CNN, people often die with numerous medical conditions. Examiners determine the underlying one. Epidemiologist Greg Gonsalves was among those to dismiss the notion that the death certificate of someone who died in a car crash would list COVID as cause of death. Wen's other source, though unmentioned by her, is a well-known contrarian on COVID health measures, opposing masking in schools and remote schooling during COVID surges. Her supposed slam dunk is to say that a particular steroid used to treat COVID patients with low oxygen levels was a good proxy measure for COVID hospitalizations. So if records show that someone who tested positive didn't get that steroid, they were probably in the hospital for a different cause. Et voila, 
COVID isn't as bad as you think. Against this thin gruel of speculation, COVID patients were probably not hospitalized for COVID. COVID might be wrongly listed on a death certificate. Well, against that stands a whole body of research, like that from The Lancet, from the World Health Organization, and the journal Nature, which reported that, quote, records of excess mortality, a metric that involves comparing all deaths recorded with those expected to occur, show many more people have died in the pandemic, close quote, than official data suggest. But while researchers persist in noting the lack of scientific support for Wen's claim, it's been unsurprisingly embraced by the COVID-denying right. A Fox News column reprinted by the New York Post said that Dr. Wen had admitted that COVID deaths are overcounted and cited complaints that this admission comes two and a half years late. The Hills radio show Rising praised Wen as a liberal who'd completely flipped. Of course, it isn't just the right. It's the position of the powerful across the board that it's time for workers to get back to the office, to roll back investment in public health, and to end discussions of how the pandemic highlights the need for universal health care, poverty alleviation, or indeed anything different from business as usual. You're listening to Counterspin. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Gigi Sohn was nominated by Joe Biden to fill the vacant fifth seat at the Federal Communications Commission in October of 2021 and renominated for a third time last month. Sohn is a veteran legal telecom expert, a fellow at Georgetown Law, co-founder of the group Public Knowledge, and for years an advisor to former FCC chair Tom Wheeler. Hundreds of groups, officials, companies, left, right, and center have publicly endorsed her. So why has her nomination languished? Therein lies the tale a disheartening one of outsized corporate power and the denaturing of government's public interest obligation and of transparently scurrilous right-wing attacks and lagging inadequate response. And back of it all, the critical fight for a media universe that lives up to the promise to be open, diverse, creative, and liberatory, and not yet another sphere of corporate power and might makes right. Here to bring us up to date on the attacks on Gigi Sohn's FCC nomination and why it matters is Evan Greer. She's director of Fight for the Future, and she joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Evan Greer. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I want to talk about the nature of the latest round of attacks on Gigi Sohn that you call out in your Fast Company piece with Yvette Scors from the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. But before we got to Fox and Breitbart and She-Mail and sex trafficking, it seems like there was another plan to say that Sohn was just too left and would censor conservative voices and hated rural people. And that was what made her unqualified, right? There was, there was kind of, this is almost like a plan B, if you will. 
Yeah, for sure. And to really understand both what's going on in this situation and just the utter hypocrisy behind it, you kind of have to go back even a little further to just remembering why the Federal Communications Commission is important and what the kind of recent history there is. So some of your listeners probably remember that, you know, as you mentioned, during the Obama administration, millions of people from across the political spectrum spoke out and fought really hard for the enactment of strong oversight of the telecom industry. And that fight was sort of mostly talked about as the net neutrality fight. And it certainly did have to do with those net neutrality rules, although it also had to do with, again, the kind of broader battle around the FCC's ability to protect the public interest from what are effectively natural monopolies in these giant telecom companies like Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, et cetera. And during the Trump administration, um, Ajit Pai, the chair that Trump nominated, swept through the Senate very, very quickly um, and within months had already begun the process of repealing those rules. We're now, you know, two years into the Biden administration and Biden does not even have a fully functional FCC. So those delays, we're going to talk in a moment about the smears that Gigi Sohn has faced, but I think it's important that we first just talk about the impact of that, which is that this agency that plays an essential role in protecting the public interest and protecting us from being, frankly, scammed and screwed over by these large and incredibly powerful monopolies, has been totally unable to do their job because of the dark money-funded smear campaign that has slowed down Gigi Stone's nomination. And I think it's important to understand that because folks like Ajit Pai, who is a former top lawyer for Verizon and had tremendous conflicts of interest for the job, again, were approved very, very quickly by the Senate because historically these types of confirmation processes for these types of roles have been largely pro forma, just sort of a, you know, you, yeah, sure, we'll approve your guy, you approve our guy, and all is well and good. And this has been the exception to that, where Gigi Stone has just faced relentless smear campaign, some of which we know is funded directly by the telecom industry because it's coming from groups that they've effectively used as their mouthpieces in the past, folks like the tax. Payers Protection Alliance and others that have taken large amounts of money from the industry and routinely put out statements more or less in line with their policies. And so they kind of started a lot of the attacks on Stone, calling her, you know, left wing, playing into these tropes around claims of anti-conservative bias, saying that she supports censorship. All of that's completely ridiculous. Stone, like myself, is a you know, staunch defender of the First Amendment and has actually been very outspoken about the need for protecting speech from across the political spectrum. It's actually rare these days in D.C. to have someone that does stand up for the free speech rights, even of their political opponents. And Gigi is really one of those people who has a, a strong dedication to free speech and free expression. But, you know, the folks that are laundering these attacks don't really care about their veracity. The goal is just to create confusion. And they've been very successful in just kind of creating a lot of confusion and flack that has now been picked up 
by the right-wing media who are sort of emboldened by these telecom-funded attacks, and they've really taken that and run with it. And to be frank, they've now sort of run off the deep end, and we can talk about that a bit more in a minute. Well, thank you very much for pointing to the the complicated nature of it, because, yeah, it's very hard to push a line that Gigi Sohn would censor conservative voices when you have public support for her from the likes of Chris Ruddy, the head of Newsmax, you know, um, and, and Preston Patton, the former Fox and ABC executive who are coming forward saying she's never said anything that indicated to me that she would censor conservative voices. And so and then the anti-rural thing was just a kind of textbook thing where you circulate a video that you deceptively edit and and folks just run with it. But now we see a certain kind of machine has been activated. You know, copycat headlines, the Daily Mail, for Pete's sake, is involved. So let's talk about then what you call going off the rails, you know, uh, the nature of this current attack. And just because it's what listeners may have seen, what the heck does Gigi Sohn have to do with sex trafficking? (laughs) Absolutely nothing. But again, that you know, doesn't deter these outlets that tend to play pretty fast and loose with the facts. But let me explain sort of what these attacks are and what the argument that they're trying to make is, and then I'll, you know, very quickly explain why that's a load of bleep. Sounds good. If you will. So, you know, as you mentioned, in the last about week and a half, we saw a bunch of far right-wing news outlets publish more or less identical articles claiming that you know Gigi Stone, this nominee, has opposed efforts to combat sex trafficking. That's kind of the argument that they're making. Now, even these outlets that, again, don't particularly care about the facts have a fair amount of trouble backing up that claim because, again, it's utterly nonsensical. But what they're basically saying is they're attacking Gigi for sitting on the board of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, which is an organization probably many of your listeners know about, maybe even have donated to. They're sort of like an ACLU for the Internet. They have been staunch defenders of free speech and opponents of government censorship and surveillance unapologetically for many years. And EFF is one of dozens of human rights organizations from around the world that oppose a piece of legislation called SESTA-FOSTA. This was legislation that created a carve-out in Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act around content online that could theoretically be related to sex trafficking. The bill was so poorly written that, again, it was opposed by the entire human rights community. And, in fact, the U.S. Department of Justice came right out and said a couple of years later that the law has been utterly ineffective in aiding them in actual prosecutions of real sex trafficking and other related crimes. And it's actually made it harder for them to do so. So EFF and many organizations oppose this law, not because they oppose efforts to combat sex trafficking, but because they oppose a terrible law that actually made it harder to combat sex trafficking while in the process opening the floodgates for widespread online censorship of a wide range of content that had absolutely nothing to do with sex trafficking, like LGBTQ content, content related to sexual health, content related to learning about consent and positive models for healthy and consensual adult relationships. You know, this is the type of stuff that got scrubbed off the Internet 
by a ham-fisted law that, again, was opposed by many organizations, not just the EFS. But these headlines kind of gloss over all of that and just sort of wave their hands and try to say, you know, Gigi Stone, Seth Fosta, sex trafficking. But here's the thing, is that none of this actually matters at all to Gigi's candidacy for a role at the FCC. Because even if she had taken a position on Seth DeFosta, which she never has, and even if somehow her role on the board of a highly respected organization like EFS implicated her in every single one of EFF's positions on many, many issues, um, the FCC has absolutely no jurisdiction in this area whatsoever. They have nothing to do with the online content moderation rules of platforms like Facebook or Instagram or YouTube. The FCC is laser focused on providing oversight of telecom companies, the companies that connect us to the internet, your phone company, your cable company. And so this is just completely smoke and mirrors. This is an issue that the FCC doesn't even touch. And it'd be like complaining that you don't like Gigi's position on climate change in another area that the FCC has no jurisdiction over. So it's a completely non-substantive attack. It's very much driven by these homophobic tropes that we've seen going more and more mainstream among both Republican lawmakers and the kind of right-wing media ecosystem. That's about conflating queerness with predatory behavior um, and conflating queerness with deviance and harm. And so that's really what this is all about. These attacks are thinly veiled homophobia because Gigi Stone is not just a highly qualified nominee for the FCC. She's also the first openly gay nominee for the position. And so that's really what this comes down to is folks are weaponizing homophobia to try to derail what is a highly qualified nominee for an agency that needs to be fully staffed in order to advance the important priorities that the Biden administration has laid out around ensuring that everyone has access to affordable broadband, around restoring net neutrality and broadband privacy rules, and uh, updating the maps. You know, this whole smear around rural folks is ridiculous because Gigi has actually has an impeccable track record on working across the aisle to expand broadband access into rural communities. It's something she's really passionate about. So again, you know, when you kind of get into the substance of it, you actually find, as you mentioned, that people from across the political spectrum really support Gigi's candidacy. But what's been slowing her down is these dark money smear campaigns, the homophobic smear campaigns, and to be frank, the silence of Senate Democrats who have been pretty slow to stand up and speak out and condemn these attacks for what they are and who have repeatedly delayed the confirmation proceedings at the behest of the disingenuous opposition coming from Republicans and right-wing media outlets. So Gigi now does have a, a hearing coming up on Valentine's Day. So hopefully that'll be a match made in heaven and we will put some of this behind us and we'll see Senate Democrats stand strong against these attacks. But it has been a, a harrowing experience to just see how an LGBTQ nominee who's highly qualified for their position has been so viciously smeared in this blatantly homophobic way, and that Democrats have not come to her defense as loudly and swiftly as they absolutely should. I have to say, I would kind of add elite media to the shamefully silent crowd, not that they aren't dutifully recounting the slurs and even the complaints about the slurs, but I guess large scale, I see a failure to identify AstroTurf 
at every occurrence to say that this group that calls itself decency or accountability, you know, we don't know. They won't let us know whether they're in fact bankrolled by cable companies and ISPs. And we're not going to evince a lot of curiosity about that. You know, I would like to see more from corporate media and kind of separating out in terms of seeing the homophobia for itself, first of all, as corrosive to any kind of conversation that we're trying to have, but in this context, also identifying it as the smokescreen that it is. And I wonder what you would like to see media doing in this instance. Yeah, I think this is a really valid point. And I think it's a broader systemic problem with our media ecosystem. And, you know, in some ways, this is one of the reasons why, again, it's so important that we have a fully functional FCC whose role it is to ensure fairness and in internet rules, et cetera, to, you know, allow the fostering of independent media. But I agree. I mean, I think a big part of the problem is a lot of reporting is sort of, you know, to create this fair and balanced perception is very much a he said, she said of, uh, you know, lobby groups where they'll say, you know, Evan Greer of Fight for the Future said this and so-and-so of such and such organization said that. And maybe sometimes they'll include and that organization is funded by the industry. But that's sort of more of a footnote. And that doesn't necessarily give readers context, right? That just sort of leaves them thinking like, okay, well, this group is saying this and that group is saying that. And of course, they all have their you know, various different interests, but I'm left not being sure what's true. And I do think that outlets could do a lot more to unpack, you know, what is the real context around this and not just say this group said this and that group said that, but help readers truly understand what the motivations are at play. And frankly, you know, when call out BS when it is as obvious as it often is. And in this circumstance, I think it is very, very clear and there could be more incisive reporting on just how blatant the smear campaign has been. One final thing. I find a big picture problem to be a tacit acceptance of the idea that there are just some folks who want regulators who oppose regulation, you know, and that in the interests of fairness, those folks should have their perspective represented in regulatory policy. You know, this seems like like one of the sort of so big that it's off the page presumptions that, of course, you know, for balance, we should have directing regulatory agencies, people who have said explicitly or implicitly that they just oppose regulation of industry, period. I just find that a weird situation. It's an even weirder situation than that in some ways, because that deregulatory instinct that has tended to come from kind of the libertarian right has been replaced in a lot of ways by what is actually, I would argue, an even more concerning turn toward right-wing politicians wanting to use the regulatory state to enact their kind of frightening moral vision on the rest of us, right? Where we see folks like Ron DeSantis is very happy to use his state government apparatus to criminalize and crack down on venues that host drag shows or you know, other types of speech that he doesn't like or to reform the education system in his vision. And so, you know, I'm actually someone that is generally pretty skeptical about granting, especially federal regulatory agencies, too much power. 
But that's what, again, is so absurd in this situation. When we're talking about the types of rules that the Federal Communications Commission can and does put into place, they're not limiting speech. They're not restricting what you, a person, can do on the Internet. They are holding your cable and phone company accountable so that you you have freedom. And I think that's what's been so absurd is the far right has, again, really spread this smear, this idea that, like, oh, Gigi Stone and the Biden FCC is going to take over the Internet and regulate it, when really what they're doing or what they want to do is preserve the Internet as a free and open place where anyone can run a website and the government can't shut it down and nobody can shut it down and can't lean on telecom companies to censor content. So it's really a lot of these politics have just gotten very topsy-turvy where it's actually often at this point Republicans who are looking to use the regulatory state to bully corporations into doing things that they want them to do or stop them from doing things they don't want them to do. And so, you know, I think we just shouldn't take them very seriously when they kind of say, oh, well, we need a light touch regulation when these are some of the same folks that are looking to use the coercive power of the state to silence actual speech, to ban books, et cetera. So I think we as progressives need to reclaim our passion and commitment to free expression as a value and, you know, be very clear that actually I want a fully functional FCC because I think it's the FCC's job to preserve free speech and free expression. And that's why I'm fighting for this. And that's why I care about it and not let people that are actually very into censorship go around laundering these bogus claims of anti-conservative bias or, you know, censorship from someone like Gigi Stone when it just couldn't be further from the truth. We've been speaking with Evan Greer. She's director of Fight for the Future. They're online at fightforthefuture.org. Evan Greer, thank you so much for taking time for us this week on Counterspin. Anytime. Thanks so much for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on FAIR's website. It's FAIR.org. The website is also the place to sign up for FAIR's newsletter extra or to show support for the show if you are able and so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.